0: Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for March 1st, 2020. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, The Pursuit of Quotidian Hedonism. When I read again this story of David and Bathsheba, the leader of a nation spying on a beautiful bathing woman and shamelessly taking her for his own sexual pleasure, having her husband killed to provide cover, I thought about that man who said he used to love to go to church as a child. Because he was raised in a very conservative home, and if not for the Bible, he would never have gotten to read anything about sex and violence. That's a true story. He did say that. This story is lascivious, and good people do not need to linger too long on its lurid details, especially when I'm trying to preach. It's an old tale, unfortunately too often repeated. The contemporary parallel sits before us today like that proverbial elephant in the room. The sad contrast with today's saga of playmates and unpresidential payoffs is that in the biblical story, at least the prophet had the conviction and the courage to confront the man. As the biblical story unfolds, David takes the woman and tries to cover up his shame. And then the prophet Nathan comes to the king. He comes and tells him a disguised story about a poor man who's robbed by a rich man. And in chapter 12, the next chapter of of our story today... The Bible says, then David's anger was greatly kindled against that rich man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. The story reaches its climax as the prophet points a finger in the face of the king of Israel. And he utters those chilling words, you are the man. Sadly for our country. The prophets in the king's court today have only given cover for pleasure without conscience. Instead of calling reprehensible sin behavior the sin that it is, they have coddled the president in shameless hypocrisy. There was a time when this nation was rightly infuriated by Oval Office affairs with interns and backdoor liaisons with movie stars. Today we offer pardon with no penance, calling the most disgusting of behavior irrelevant to evangelicals. That's a direct quote. Speaking of the country's need for a season of Lenten repentance, Reverend Michael Curry, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, says, Our appeal comes during a time of genuine crisis of national character. This is not a matter of partisanship, but of deep concern for the soul of a nation, a crisis of national character. When the most visible preachers in the land will not call out obvious immorality, we stand on the edge of a dangerous precipice. We risk losing any claim to moral integrity as a nation or losing the future of the church or both. These are perilous times for a divided nation. We could use a prophet. Now, I need to stop and tell you that recently I've been writing my sermons in part by voice texting into my phone. I'm walking around walking the dog and I'm thinking about Sunday sermon. And so I'm writing my sermon and then I upload it to my computer to edit and print. As I spoke those last words, we need a prophet Apple's translator named Siri either misunderstood my southern ease or perhaps she just has no theological insight. And what Siri heard was we need a prophet, P R O F I T. Hold that thought. It would be easy to spend a sermon based on this text condemning the lewd immoral conduct of one politician that contemporary situation is a biblically appropriate illustration and given all that is at stake today nothing less than the soul of America it would be a legitimate theme for a progressive pulpit actually for any pulpit pointing the finger at one very unpresidential act would be appropriate It would also be far too easy. The threat to the soul of the nation is not just the immoral character of one politician or a few politicians or a few pastors or pundits. The threat is much greater than that. And the threat is not mostly one or several gross examples of pleasure without conscience. The great threat to us all Is us all. The threat to Israel was not that David was single handedly responsible for the sin of his nation. The threat was that he represented what his nation had already become. The threat today is not one licentious liaison so indecent that it could also cripple the nation. It is that we may have become so comfortable in our own convenient lives that we cannot see decency, integrity, morality slipping away. Pleasure without conscience. Quotidian hedonism is just Russ's big worded way of asking you if our pursuit of self-indulgent pleasure has become so expected, so ordinary, so mundane in our way of life that we cannot even see it. Maybe we should start with Siri. Maybe the first indicator of our sin is that we are so immersed in prophet that we cannot even recognize the prophetic when we hear it. In last week's sermon, I said, while the Dow is approaching 30,000, 21% of all U.S. children live below the poverty threshold. Almost half live below, in low-income families. And since 50% of all Americans don't even own a single share of stock, the skyrocketing growth of the richest among us is not the measure of a successful economy, much less the morality of a nation. Have we become so enticed by profit, the lures of the market, by the pleasure of our wealth that we can no longer see the indecency of 5,000 students in Charlotte's public schools going to sleep homeless every night? Do Do we so need to justify our version of capitalism, our defense of a free market, Our claim to individual rights that we can sleep comfortably when so many children are sleeping in cars and with neighbors and bedding down in strange churches night after night. Don't throw stones at the preacher, please. It was Jesus who said, don't store up treasures on earth. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A major journalistic undertaking by the New York Times magazine called the 1619 Project is an effort to clearly trace the economic and material success of the United States of America to the 20 enslaved individuals who were brought to Point Comfort, Virginia 400 years ago, now 401 years ago, 1619. These 20 enslaved individuals, the first of countless thousands, represent the story of 250 years of slave labor, without which a cotton economy and then an industrial economy could not have made the U.S. the most dominant economic force in human history, without slave labor. Our success is built on slave labor, Have we ever really acknowledged this, pleasure without conscience? Our friend and professor, Dr. Bill Leonard, has just written these words. Wake Forest University has just issued a public apology for its slavery-related origins. University President Nathan Hatch declared, I apologize. I apologize for the exploitation and use of enslaved people who helped create and build this university through no choice of their own. That very personal apology for slavery reminded me of a prayer of confession that I wrote years ago that invited this congregation to apologize corporately for a then recent tragic killing of an African-American teenager on a Charlotte street, and for the exploitation of minimum wage workers, and for the heartless materialism that demeans rich and poor alike. That afternoon, I received a scathing email from one of my best friends and supporters, It really was from one of my best friends and supporters in this congregation who said, and he was screaming through his email, I'm not apologizing for any of that stuff. I didn't kill anybody. Are we so inured to the segregation that makes it always us versus them, us right and them wrong? Still black and white, so rich versus poor, are we so immersed in those divisions, so blinded by what we have inherited and earned and become, that we cannot see our own participation. Yes, even our culpability in a system that perpetuates the conditions that predictably produce such violence. Can we not even see it? No, preacher. Don't ask me to think that my pleasure may in some way be connected to their pain. I'm not apologizing for that. Pleasure without conscience. A few years ago a multi-part series in the Charlotte Observer, traced the unrelenting drive of Walmart to squeeze down the price of every single product. Reporters followed workers in a South American factory that were first required to produce something like 20 shirts an hour, and then it was 25 an hour, and then it was 30 an hour. It just went on and on and on for the same price. Executives threatened factory owners who pressured shift bosses, who drove seamstresses to the point of breaking. One young mother wept, telling the reporters that at the end of her nonstop work days, her hands were so tired and broken that she could not even lift her infant child. And before the story ended, Walmart had moved the work of that factory from South America to Bangladesh because there was a factory owner there who promised even more or even less. Now, I'm not trying to shame Walmart. In a capitalist economy, the customers are always right. The Walmartization of America happens in every industry so you and I can get a bargain. Pleasure without conscience. I never think about the food we eat. Thank you to Lisa for praying for this. I never think about the food we eat until I go to the grocery store in my small South Carolina hometown. And then I think, my goodness, they ain't got nothing to eat here. <laughs> Where is the star fruit? What in the world is star fruit? Whoever ate that stuff? And no kiwi in Clinton, South Carolina. And they don't have fresh blueberries in February. Can you imagine? Down the road at my favorite Taj Matitor, I can get corn on the cob and fresh strawberries and a dozen other fresh vegetables that I cannot even identify by name, 365, 366 days a year. But when's the last time I even thought about the migrant workers, too often derided as criminals and freeloaders, who work thankless hours in boiling conditions, who live in substandard housing and work for substandard wages to provide anything I want to eat any day of the year. When's the last time I had a thought of gratitude for the people who put those vegetables on my table? Pleasure without conscience. The dictionary says conscience is an inner voice guiding the rightness or wrongness of one's behavior. The life of Christ invites us to think of conscience as knowledge tempered by morality. Awareness widened by compassion. Attentiveness deepened by gratitude. This is an amazing, wonderful world. And you and I are among the most fortunate human beings who have ever lived on the face of this planet. Beauty and abundance make our lives pleasurable in almost every possible way. The least we can do is be aware so we can be grateful. We can think before we shop, study before we invest. Vote with the poor in mind. We can read widely. We could change the channel. We could listen and say thank you. We can tip the housekeeper. Wave an acknowledgement to the garbage collector. The quotidian hedonism we have already achieved has at least the potential to make us grateful. And gratitude will make us more thoughtful, compassionate, moral human beings. May it be so. Amen.
1: An epilogue is a section or speech at the end of a book or a play that serves as a comment on or a conclusion to what has happened. So each week during this series, I want to flip the phrase of the day to consider the reverse. I'm also realizing I'm going to be real tired at the end of Lent because this is a lot to take in. He's just given us the full load of guilt, and I'm going to give you some more. With the flip of the phrase, what about conscience without pleasure? There are people who simply cannot let themselves go. They cannot have fun. They cannot live freely and fully. There's the religious uptights. I was one of those. Some combination of fear of disappointing my father and a healthy dose of Christian piety kept me pretty uptight and judgmental as a kid and a teenager and even into my young adult years. And I worried all the time about all the people going to hell. And frankly, it's just hard to have fun when you got that weighing on you. Don't dance, don't party. Be conservative in what you wear. It was all a message that somehow implied Christians were not supposed to have fun. And so body image gets wrapped up in in an unhealthy dose of religiosity, just to name one thing. It still happens, though. Let a minister enter the room or a conversation and people act differently. Differently. It's true. People presume we don't have a sense of humor. We do. We are really fun people. (laughs) Now, if your joke is about putting somebody else down, say a racist joke or a homophobic joke, then no, I don't think that's funny. But it's not because I'm a minister. It's because I'm a human being that cares about other human beings. So many times, this this profession is simply a downer in cultural settings. It's presumed that religion is just not fun. The religious uptights in our world today, the ones with plenty of conscience, with no pleasure, are killing us as a church. And then there's the hard-driven Protestant work ethic folks that think that two weeks of vacation is plenty, and they see no problem with a 30-minute lunch break, bring your own lunch, and the 50-plus-hour work week is to be praised. Because work, work, work is the bottom line. Twenty years ago when we arrived here, we had just been at our previous church long enough to acquire that blessed third week of vacation. And in the negotiations of salary and package here, we saw that we got two weeks of vacation. And we said to the committee, we were just about to have that third week of vacation. And after all these years of experience leading up to this, would you all consider giving us three weeks of vacation? And they said, no. (laughs) It would take. Five years, according to the policy, for us to get that third week of vacation. That's rough. I'm not going to lie. I'm very grateful that after one year here, they gave us the third week. And now we have four. After 20 years, it feels like we might ought to have more than that, but I'm not going to (laughs) complain. Google has learned how to have fun even at work. Russ's cousin works for Google in the heart of New York City. He took us on a tour when we visited there a few months ago. They have nap cubbies. I keep dreaming of Helt Hall as my new nap cubby. I've not done it yet. Tons of amazing food, ping pong, pool tables, Legos, scooters. It's a virtual playground for hard-working adults. We could not go to Mark's desk, though. That The work area is off limits to the public. Top secret stuff, you know, like I would understand it and steal all of Google's secrets with their next big idea. Millennials may get a bad rap about some of their ways that may seem, dare I say, lazy to an older crowd. But I say more power to you. Studies show that we are more productive when we are rested And happy. A conscience without pleasure is a pretty heavy and sad way to live. So let us claim the words of Scripture eat, drink, be merry. We are good news people. Let us not forget that even as we seek to let our conscience be our guide, we can. Have fun, too. May it be so. Amen.
0: We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, Social Justice and Interfaith Understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening. Peace and peace to you.